Good evening. Can't think of a perfect, a more perfect song uh, to, to go into our topic tonight than the one that was just led, because uh, we're going to be looking at for uh, a lot of this lesson. We're going to be looking at the holiness of God uh, as it comes to worship, uh, what our worship is, and uh, what exactly we mean when we talk about uh, balanced worship. Now. This is a subject that really interests me, uh, the the uh, evolution, I guess, for for lack of a better uh, term, of worship as you see in the Old Testament, uh, and then what it becomes in the New Testament. And so we're actually going to begin there in Genesis 1, if you have your Bibles. Most of you can probably quote this verse. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in this one little verse, uh, there are so many uh, valuable lessons and application for us today. But really what this verse does is it introduces to us the object of our worship, and that is God. So what this tells us a about his uh, and who God is just in the verse of Genesis. As Moses opens up, he tells us a little bit uh, more about the character of God uh, and, and who God is. And he's introduced as a power source. So in the beginning, God created. So he is this uh, magnificent power force uh, that, that spoke everything into being. We see from this verse that God is one. He is, he is one God. There was one God from the very beginning. We see that he is spirit. God is not human. He's not physical. Everything that is created, it had to be done by a supernatural, something outside of the natural world. We also see from this verse that God is eternal. He is always been, he always will be, and then I think it's interesting that this is also echoed in the book of Revelation. At the end of the Bible, uh, at least twice in the book, God will refer to himself, again through uh, inspiration, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the, and the end, the God that has always been, the God that will always be. So God is eternal, he's infinite, he's unchanging. This same God that we worship today, though we worship differently than they did in the Old Testament, we're worshiping the same God, the God of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we worship an unchanging God. We also see something that hurts the mind or hurts the brain to think about, that God is self-existent. Who created God? Where did God come from? Well, he's always been. He's always been. And that's very difficult, a difficult concept for us to get our minds around because it's, it's difficult for us to think of something that has not been created because we live in a world that is all created. Everything that we look at, everything that we do has been created. So to think uh, about something or someone like God who is self-existent, has always been, uh, is a, a, a humbling thought, but it's also a very uh, complicated and difficult thing to get our minds wrapped around. We also see that God is the author of life from this verse. We see that he is immortal, he's a creator, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's sovereign. All of this is introduced to us about God in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. But God teaches us about sacrifice very shortly after we're introduced to him as our creator. He teaches us through uh, Adam and Eve and that account that we have for us where God actually makes the first sacrifice uh, for the sins of Adam and Eve. If you look at chapter 3, in verse 21, you read that, that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Now there's something interesting about that little, this little detail that we have here that God put Adam in naming all of the animals. Now, how uh, this actually occurred is probably a little bit different than what I'm thinking in my head, uh, because I do. I have a dog named Bro. Uh, I have a truck named 
Casey. I have a motorcycle named Clyde. We have another small little dog named Winnie. We na- I, we've named all kinds of different objects that we like, me and Janelle. Uh, but the naming of those things is probably a little bit different than Adam's experience in naming all of the animals and, and, and uh, categorizing them into uh, species. But what's so uh, touching about this and, and what gives it greater depth is right here, we have God killing one of the animals that Adam named. So they didn't eat meat. They were they had more of an intimate relationship in the garden. Adam named this animal uh, that because God put him in charge of, of that job. And then God kills that innocent animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve. Because that's how it always has been. God is unchanging. The way that, that we see God operating in the Old and the New Testament are the same. In order for there to be a covering of sins, there must be an innocent sacrifice. There must be bloodshed. And then we see this again with Jesus uh, in the New Testament, of course. So God can cover sins, but it has to involve bloodshed. You see, in John 1 and verse 29, the ultimate fulfillment is found in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of just Adam and Eve, but of the entire world, and it continues to do so. There's only one way for a sinner to approach a holy God, that God that we just opened up talking about, uh, and that is through bloodshed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, and you read about that in Hebrews 9.22. And Hebrews is really just a a book made up of a a bunch of Old Testament books together to show uh, how the Old and the New Testament link together, and to show uh, fulfillment or prophecy and fulfillment. It's also a, an echo of Leviticus 17 and verse 11, which you know that this book was written for the tribe of Levi, for the priests, laying down all the ground rules and the laws for the Israelite people. But it says in verse 11, the life and the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So God has always required sacrifice. He's always required uh, that we acknowledge him as the creator. He's always required worship. And as you go through the Bible and as you make your way through Genesis and you read about uh, the Israelites and you read about uh, the, the, the Exodus and, and the, the children of Israel as they're learning who God is, God is teaching them who he is and they make mistakes and then we are supposed to learn uh, from those mistakes. If you remember the, the worship in the Old Testament and you look at Jewish worship versus Christian uh, worship like we have today, there are a lot of differences, but there's some similarities. When you look at how they worshiped God in the, uh, the wilderness, and they set up the tabernacle, reading through some of the instructions for not only the priests, but for God's people and how they are to approach him, how they are to address God, to worship God, uh, it, it is, it's almost tedious to read down through the list of things that God had set up for them. The priests are to wear a, a certain kind of clothing. It's a garment to be made of a certain kind of material. Before they can even enter into that place of worship or the, tagern- the tabernacle, then they had to immerse themselves, to cleanse themselves in water. Uh, and when, before they uh, even got into the tabernacle... They had to make sure that all the wicks on the candles uh, were trimmed properly, that there was incense, that there was bread on, on the show table. And, and we see that there was all of this ritual that went into worship to show that God is up here and we're down here. God is holy and worthy of our respect, and we must do it in the right way. We also see as you continue to go through the Old Testament that the head and the heart have to be connected when it comes to worship. 
It can't just be ritual. It can't just be about the trimming of the candles and the showbread and the garments that we wear. The head and the heart have to be connected. We have to do the rituals right, but we also have to do it out of a love for God. And you see this frustration in uh, Hosea as Hosea is trying to get his people who are, are in captivity to go back to God, to worship God properly, to reject all the other pagan gods, and, and to do it uh, instead of just this, these robotic motions, to worship God with both the head and the heart. And so you have the, the first worship when you have the, the, the sacrifice on God's part, and then you have, of course, Cain and Abel, where you have one sacrifice that's acceptable, one sacrifice that's not. So let's look at this idea of failure to worship before we really get into uh, our balance in worship and what that does for us today. Failure to worship. Failure to worship is a product of mixing humanity and holiness together. And this is going to be a, a central idea in this lesson. But failure to worship God properly, it's a product of mixing humanity and holiness together. And we're going to look at a, a couple uh, of instances that I think will prove this even further. If you look at, at in Exodus 32 and verse 6, you have uh, the who will become uh, the, the chief priest later, Aaron. He orders the people to collect all the gold uh, in their possessions. And they use it to create an idol. He, he caves into the people's demands. If you remember, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. But this golden calf comes out of nowhere. And, and when you read it, it's, it's really difficult for us, I think, to, especially from our perspective, because we can read how the Bible begins, how it ends, how each account unfolds, uh, and what's going to happen. Uh, and so when we look at uh, something that like this, where you have Aaron, one of the leaders that's supposed to help Moses, uh, and one that, that God has authorized to, to lead his people, you have him caving to the demands uh, to build a golden calf. And you think, and, and it's easy for us to think, Think, how could they do that? I mean, they just watched God deliver them from the Egyptians. They just watched God act in this very supernatural way. He parts the Red Sea. He and then he kills all of the the Egyptians that were chasing them. How could how could they do that? how could they create an image of God when God clearly didn't want that? Well, uh, you see this happen a few times uh, in the Old Testament and, and even some in the New, where people mix their humanity in with the holiness. We uh, Clearly, the, the people loved God, uh, or they, but they wanted to love God in their own way. So we have a God, we need to have an image of that God, so let's mix the humanity in with the holiness and create an image of God. Did God want the image? No. He didn't want to be represented as a golden calf, but they did it anyway. And we look at it, maybe it, today we might try and make some arguments for what needs to be in worship, what needs to stay out of worship, and maybe we throw around phrases like, well, we, we don't need to strain at gnats. You know, is this really important? Is this really a salvation issue? I mean, as long as our heart is in the right place, as long as we have a love and respect for God, then everything should be good. But we look here, this, is, this was not uh, the, the children of Israel rejecting God, that God didn't exist. They were acknowledging, yes, God exists. And in fact, when they create this golden calf, they say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. So it, it had nothing to do with them rejecting God, but they, they mixed in the humanity with the holiness. Obviously, just like every other pagan nation has an idol of their God, well, we need to have an idol too to let other people know that this is our God. And so you can see where this idea would come from. So it's a product of mixing humanity in with the holiness, but it's also, unbalanced worship is also a product of mixing opinion in with the offering. Opinion in with the offering, because that's what worship is. It's We are offering up to God something. Uh, Leviticus chapter 10, 
Another very uh, famous account in the Bible, uh, not in a good way, not for a good reason, but you have Nadab and Abihu. Again, you have sons of a priest in the tribe of Levi, and they decide to go into the church work, uh, to to put it that way. But they are offering incense to God, and it says uh, in Leviticus chapter 10 that they offered to God strange fire. And the Hebrew word translated there, strange, means unauthorized, foreign, or profane. So God not only rejected their sacrifice, but he found it so offensive that he consumed the two men right there on the spot with fire. See, this is what happens when we mix humanity together with the holiness. This is what happens when we mix in our opinion with the offering. We think that the fire needs to smell a certain way. We, need, we think that the fire needs to look a certain way. And so we'll go ahead and do it. And sometimes to our own demise, especially what we have for us there in the Old Testament. But I want to think about this uh, for a second because I, I believe it's a very important concept. Though we are created in the image of God and we see a lot of similarities in us when we look at Jesus uh, as, as he comes in to, to minister for those years where he was on earth, we see him cry. We see him become angry. We can see some more humanity in Jesus, maybe more so than we see uh, in God's Father that we see in the Old Testament. But we can't let that go so far as to think that we and God are now on the same level because we're the same. We, we think along the same ways because God is something uh, completely different. He is holy, set apart from us. You know, there are, are certain things that dogs uh, and animals uh, will find pleasant uh, to the senses, like the, the smell. Dogs like things that smell so bad. And I was reminded of that, and maybe some of you already know. I know Russell already knows. Uh, this week, uh, we got skunk spray all in our house uh, and uh, on my skin and my hair. And that is very hard to remove. It's very hard to get off your skin once you get it. But... You know who is not upset about this? You know who has not complained one time that our whole entire house smells like a skunk? Our dogs. They love it. In fact, the, the, I will be scrubbing bro, my dog, and, and wanting to try and get that smell out. And he hates the smell of the shampoo. He doesn't want the shampoo on him. He's like, get that nasty stuff off of me. He wants the skunk spray. You know, in the same way, and, and, and maybe in some, some, uh, some similar ways, there are things that we might have in our mind that this is what God wants. Obviously, God wants this. He wants the music to sound this way. He wants worship to be carried out this way. But though we're made in the image of God, we are very different than God. And God's sense of smell is a lot different uh, than ours. In Genesis uh, 8 and verse 21, you have, uh, we, we see that, that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice of, of Noah. And the Lord said in his heart, notice after the aroma reaches him, uh, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And so we see that, that God, he smells the sacrifice. It's a pleasing aroma. And then notice what comes after this. God responds uh, in that way, in, in appreciation uh, to that sacrifice that was made to him. So animals and humans have very different preference when it comes to smells. God and humans, we are the same in, in that way. So let's look at, at fruitful worship, because this is where uh, we're going to, to benefit from this the most. There's a long history of worship, and there's so many other places we could go uh, to, to really look at how worship has evolved through the Old Testament into the New. But let's just let's spend the rest of our time looking at what is fruitful worship and what is balanced worship. In Ephesians 5, and, uh, verses 1 and 2, 
It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, it says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us into triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So what we know is that sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for our sins was something that was pleasing to God. That was an acceptable sacrifice. Just like the innocents had to be killed with the animals to cover the sins of the Israelites, it took a perfect sacrifice through the lamb uh, uh, that is Jesus to make that sacrifice for everybody, for all of mankind. And so that knowledge of him, by spreading uh, the, the message of Christ, we're spreading that knowledge of him everywhere, and that same fragrance is sent up to God. So therefore, it makes perfect sense that when we spread the knowledge of Christ, God is pleased with the scent of the saints. That's how we have a fruitful sacrifice. But I want to talk about uh, this, this, this term that's, that's thrown around a lot. And, and it's, it's sometimes difficult to find out uh, what it is or where that line that we're talking about is. But sometimes when it comes to worship, we'll say something like, well, it's, I, don't, I don't believe that it's a salvation issue. And that's the, that's the term that we like to throw around. Is, is, it, is this a salvation issue? And is the color of the carpet, is it a salvation issue? No, well, we can change it. You know, that, that, that doesn't matter. Does PowerPoint, does that matter? Does the layout of the auditorium, does that matter? And, and a lot of these things, that, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we can, we can pick whatever color we want. We can do whatever we want as far as the layout goes of the auditorium. But when it comes to worship... I would like to, to submit that it is a salvation issue. Just based on what you see, how, how God uh, looks and views worship. It is something that we're telling God, this is what I offer you. This is what I kiss towards you. This is what I'm lifting up to you. And so if we're going to give something to God, if we're going to offer something to God, then we better be sure that it's something that God actually wants. And so to, to drive this point home, I want us to look at Revelation 4. Verses 1 through 8. Revelation 4, verses 1 through 8. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with something sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and rubies. And a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashings of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And there are in the center around the throne four living creatures... They were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know, I think we, we will appreciate worship and see it as a salvation issue if we can keep in our minds 
or use as the word revelation uses that word behold. Every time it's used uh, there in revelation, it's talking about to place in the front of your mind. So when we worship God and as we prepare our minds to worship him, we should think about the location of our prayers. Where are we sending up that praise? Where is our worship going? And then look at the throne room scenes that we have painted for us in, in so many passages in the Bible. You know, even in the Old Testament and in the two and in the New as well, when you have people come in contact with God, you think about Paul on the road to Damascus, or you think about when Jacob is wrestling with God in the Old Testament. Every time there is this encounter with God, there is fear and there's terror at His holiness and at His glory. In Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, they're all in awe at God's glory. When they see it and when they're in the presence of God, they're, they're awestruck by it. When we worship God, we need to think about where those prayers are going. Where is that praise going? Where is that worship going? Because I think if we can keep that in our minds, then we'll, we can take it or we can give it the amount of respect that it deserves and, and worship in the kind of humility that is needed. But in each of those other passages that we mentioned in those other books, uh, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you have uh, some, some very similar things in common. You have angelic beasts, they're covering their face even though they're in the presence of God and they've been there for you know, thousands and thousands of years. Uh, they've been there the entire time, but they still cover their face acknowledging God's holiness. You have the glory of God shining brightly around his throne just because uh, of who he is. You have the splendor that is difficult for the authors to even put into words. In fact, when you look in Ezekiel and Revelation, uh, it, you can see the, the authors, they're, they're trying, even through inspiration, they're trying their very best to put into words what they're seeing. And twice in Revelation, you have uh, the angel has to tell John uh, to stop, basically pick his jaw up off the ground and start writing some of these things down. The angel has to tell John, pick up your pen and write these things down. Because of where he was at was so breathtaking and so amazing. But there's, it's splendid that can't even put into our own words. And this is the same God that we worship today. You know, in uh, May 24th of, of this year, there was a French daredevil who broke the record for the longest tightrope walk. And it was 7,000 feet. 7,000 feet. And, in the, and the, the tightrope was stretched from a construction crane to the steeple of an abbey uh, there in, in France. Now, I'm not scared of heights, uh, and I, I'd like to think of myself as a, uh, with decent balance. I skateboarded growing up, uh, but that's crazy, and that's ridiculous. But someone, that, someone wanted to, to break that record, and, and as he was stretching it from the crane to the abbey, still thought, this is a great idea. But what saved his life? He made it. He made it from one end to the, to the next. It was balance. Balance is what kept him alive. And when you think about what goes into the balance, now I'm not in the medical field and there are plenty of people who could give you a better explanation for exactly what's going on when your body is called on to balance. Uh, but I do know that it begins with the eyes and that the vision that you take in uh, is sent to the brain upside down. The image is upside down. The brain flips the image up the right way and then sends the right messages to two organs that are inside of your ear. And then from there it goes to your tendons and to your muscles and all of this is happening in a split second, enabling us to keep our balance, to readjust, to make sure that we don't fall. We think about balance in worship. It's not about equal portions. Well, if, if, if God gets to say this, well, then that means that we get to do this. That's not what we're talking about when we think about balance. It's a give and take kind of a deal. Balance is something that keeps us alive, 
Balance is something that makes sure that we don't fall. When God asks his children to have balance in whatever area of his life, he's not saying, I need you to do this because I need your life to be miserable. What he's saying is, I need you to worship me this way, act this way, carry yourself this way, because if you don't, you will fall. And God wants to keep us from falling. God designed us with the ability to avoid falling because balance keeps us safe. But God wants from us our ears that will hear when he, uh, what he needs from us. He needs us to have eyes that will see God uh, in his proper place. He needs us to have hearts that are willing to change and bend to his will. In closing, I want, I want to show you uh, one uh, aspect of the transfiguration that I love. So the transfiguration is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 17, um, Mark 9, and Luke 9. And each one kind of brings in some more details, additional details to this account. And it's a very fascinating one, I think, uh, when, you, when you look at the transfiguration. One, because it's so bizarre, and each of the accounts never seem to give enough details. And there are no pictures in the Bible, so uh, it just leaves a lot to the imagination. But I want to read... Uh, Verses uh, 2 down through verse 8 of Matthew 17. It says, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Uh, An interesting side note here. If you look in Mark chapter 9, uh, in his account, he will say that his clothes were so white that no bleach on earth could ever bleach them that white. Uh, So it was Mark's way of saying his clothes were supernaturally white uh, and there is no human on earth that could ever make them as white as they are. Uh, So a little interesting detail there. Verse 3 of Matthew 17 says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. That's a very odd, uh, an odd phrase, I think, especially because it's, we use the word duh sometimes, not as much, you don't hear it as much anymore. But this is one of those times that when Peter says, it's good for us to be here, it's like, obviously, Peter, don't talk. This is not your time. There is something bigger going on here. Uh, You just need to watch. You just need to to sit back and watch what's going to take place. So Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter's thought process is this. This is amazing. The crew's back together. We've got Elijah, we've got, a Mo- we've got Moses, and we've got Jesus. You know, if we want them to stick around, obviously what we need to do is we need to build them some tents so that they have a place to live. Because someone that just came from eternity, the other realm, needs a tent in order to, to stay here on earth. Verse 5 says, while he was still speaking, this is, uh, this is uh, Peter, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them on this high mountain, covers them, and a voice within that cloud says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. It's a similar reaction that you see uh, in, in uh, the Old Testament as well when people run into God or when, when they, they confront God. Verse 7 says, but Jesus came after this and he touches them and he says, get up. And he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, there's something that, that, that uh, takes place here that, uh, again, that has to do with, with Peter. Then some of the other, uh, God, or other accounts will bring this out as well. It says that Jesus uh, is speaking privately off uh, to the side with Elijah and Moses. So it makes the situation 
slightly even more awkward for Peter uh, when you have Jesus having this private conversation with Moses and Elijah. We're not totally sure what he's talking about, but it is interesting how both Elijah and Moses asked God at one point in their life to, to see his glory, to experience that glory, and they get a taste, they get a sample. If you remember, Moses is held uh, in the cleft of the rock. Elijah hears the whisper uh, from God. So they get to see bits and pieces of his glory, but now you have this uh, amazing moment where Jesus is transformed and there's the, the God in the flesh, God in the person uh, wearing that uh, in, in all of his splendor there. So Jesus is having this conversation with them and it's while Jesus is having that conversation that Peter decides to interrupt and he says, I need to build you all some tents. And again, we, we look at that and go, why would, you, why would you say that? But if we were there with Peter, maybe we would have done the same thing. Maybe we wouldn't have batted an eye at it because we remember just before this, Peter makes a statement and he says, Jesus says, who, who do people say that I am? And they'll say, some say Elijah, some say another one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks a direct question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus' answer to him is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but it's from heaven. Peter didn't even realize what he was saying entirely. He was getting to that point. He was growing in his faith. He was maturing, but but he didn't totally understand what was going on. And basically what Jesus is saying in this is, we don't need tents. You don't need to make a plan. You don't need to decide what to do here, because this is all to show you who I am. We walked up the mountain together, Jesus and the disciples. They walk up the mountain together, and Jesus looks a whole lot like a carpenter. But on the way back down, and they got that glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory and all of his splendor, on the way back down the mountain, you see they have a bunch of questions. Jesus, how come all of the scribes and, and all of the Pharisees say uh, that, that John the Bat or that Elijah was to come? And then Jesus explains to them, well, Elijah did come, but then he was killed. And they understood that it was John the Baptist. We might think, well, so what? What they're saying is, Jesus, we've grown up our entire life listening to these teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, saying that when the Messiah comes, Elijah will come back first. And they've heard, they've been indoctrinated, brainwashed their entire life, uh, hearing messages like that from these religious leaders and in one conversation on the way down the mountain, Jesus shakes that and, and rattles that, that childhood belief that they've held for a long time, saying, it's not really Elijah, it's John the Baptist. And then it says they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. The word understand means to transform of the mind, or the mind is beginning to shift. See, the, the, the disciples that were up there, the, the core members, the three that were, were blessed to, to get to see all of this, they, they were there for a couple of different reasons, but one, I believe, is because Jesus knew that they could see and understand and develop their faith and mature in their faith more. They could hear something that contradicts something that they heard growing up and completely change their minds and, and bend their will towards uh, the will of Jesus. You know, there are things that we want to do, things that we want to insert into worship. But if we're going to have balance in, in worship, then we have to realize where we are and where God is. We're humans, and God is God. God is big, we are not. God's bigger than we are. He gets to set the rules. He gets, determine, uh, he gets to determine what happens inside of his house, and this is God's house. You know, it may not feel right. It may not look right sometimes. We might not see uh, God's reason behind every uh, act of worship that takes place or, or how we carry out those acts, but we don't have to worry about that. 
God's told us exactly what he needs from us, exactly what he wants. And when we forget where God is and we forget what our place is, that's where people have historically always gotten into trouble. God wants to be worshipped in the right way. And if we are to worship with balance, and if we are to worship God with a worship that will be acceptable, with an aroma that will be pleasing to him, then we must follow his rules. If, the, if tonight, if you are someone here that is struggling in your spiritual walk, whether it be because uh, you uh, have, have felt slighted maybe by someone in the church, maybe because you have felt angry towards God. We know that the book of James brings out that that's, that's pretty common uh, amongst Christians, that they can be angry towards the word. Uh, maybe you have felt uh, calloused or, or shut off from God for some time. Well, you can make a, a commitment tonight. You can recommit to God. And I'm sure that the, the elders of this congregation and the members here only want for you uh, to be able to go to heaven and will encourage you and support you in any way that they can. And of course, it doesn't have to be a Wednesday night. It doesn't have to be a Sunday. But if you've been putting off putting on Christ in baptism, then you can always do that tonight as well. But again, it doesn't have to be now. It can be uh, whenever and however much time that God allows for us. But if there's something that's keeping you away from God, just realize that God's family is the only family that is on their way to heaven. And our feelings and our opinions about worship need to be put aside because God is holy and he is the one that is the object of our worship and not us. If there's something that the church can do for you and you need to respond in a public way, then you can right now. As together we stand and as we sing.